The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. This is Arun Sudaman from Provoke Media, joined from London by Paul Holmes and Maya Pavinska-Sims. Welcome to both of you. It's good to be connected virtually, at least. We are going to talk today about all of the public relations and reputation issues that have been raised by the horrible events uh, that have unfolded uh, in Eastern Europe, specifically Russia's uh, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. As many of our readers will be aware, uh, we've been covering this in in considerable detail. I think we've been producing some superb coverage. Uh, None of it uh, really has been... Uh, has, is, is linked to me at all. It's, it's really all down to the two other people uh, on this podcast, Paul and Maya. We've had the reputational risks of doing business in Russia. We've had a brief history of public relations in Russia. We've looked at how Ukrainian PR firms are responding uh, to the Russian assaults. We've looked at how specific agencies, the global MNCs in particular, WPP and Omnicom, for example, um, are, res- are responding. Many have withdrawn from their Russian operations. And of course, we've had a a very long, long read on the turning point in the disinformation war by Paul. So there's a lot to read, but let's let's start with um, the most recent piece, which looks at the reputational risks for brands. Maya, you wrote that it, 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 I think you were quoting someone, David Gallagher, I believe, and he said it wasn't necessarily a no-brainer mm. for brands to pull out of Russia. Why not? Well, I think I think the the point that David was making was that. Um, it, sanctions and pulling out of Russia is one thing, but then you leave a whole load of Russian PR professionals on the ground who don't necessarily have any support whatsoever for what Putin is doing. Um, and uh, I think that's a really, I think some really tough decisions have been have been made at, um, at brand level uh, in terms of all sorts of employees on the ground. I mean, McDonald's was late to, was late to pull out after, after boycotts and threats of boycotts. Um, but I, you know, I have some, I kind of have some sympathy with that, with not having an e-jet reaction because they've got, you know, they're not, they're not only um, uh, got thousands of people working on the ground in their restaurants, but also it's a, it's a proportion of their income. So there's, it's, it's not a, we, it's not the same as, as just a supply issue. If you're actually employing people out there, whether you're an, an agency, a PR agency or, or any kind of brand, I think it's been, been really tough to make that decision because you're basically ab- abandoning your people although many of them will continue to be paid but um yeah I think it's I think it's hard actually how much harder than than it would suggest for, from calls for boycotts um and sanctions it's um it's a bigger human decision to make about the people you're leaving behind indeed Paul um at what point does I suppose you know thinking through these issues being calm and considered cross the line into being perhaps unnecessarily evasive and cautious? Um, I think that there was um, a disturbingly long period of silence for some companies, at least. Um, I think, um, you know, I I was seeing boycott Coca-Cola hashtags, for example, uh, on Twitter um, for at least 48 hours, probably a little longer, before Coca-Cola 
eventually um, made a decision. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that the decision should have come more quickly than it did, but I do think some sort of statement was necessary. Um, and even a statement saying, you know, we're analyzing the situation, we're trying to balance the needs of all of our stakeholders, we understand the pressure for withdrawal, but we also have a responsibility to, um, to our consumers and um, our employees on the ground. Um, just, just something to let people know that this, um, this, the issue was being taken seriously. Um, seemed to me to be missing for a lot of companies um, early on, um, particularly since, particularly since so many companies moved so quickly. Um, you know, th those those companies that were early to announce their withdrawal, I think, were the ones that got the real reputational benefit from this, and and that to me is. Um, sort of at the crux of why this is an interesting story for us. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite as simple as, you know, do we follow the bottom line or do we care about our reputation? I don't want to make it quite that binary um, because obviously there are, that there are costs and difficulties uh, with continuing to do business in Russia, which were, I'm sure, for many companies, um, prohibitive um, and made withdrawal an easier decision. But for a lot of companies, this did come down to, um, do we want to continue making money in Russia? In some cases, you know, look at the oil companies, lots of money in Russia, or do we want to protect our reputation in the domestic markets? And, you know, if you look at Jeff Sonnenfeld's list of companies that have pulled out of Russia, you can see that for literally hundreds of companies, um, they came down on the side of reputation rather than on the side of let's stay there and make more money. And that, I think, is something that we're going to look back on in a few years and see as a turning point in the importance of corporate reputation um to to boardrooms and ceos yeah it's it's an interesting point or interesting points that both of you make i wonder were, were either of you or are either of you um surprised at you know that once we got past some of the initial caution um are you surprised at how quickly and how many brands um have withdrawn from russia and do you think that it perhaps suggests that we're kind of entering a, an era where brands themselves become polarized, you know, and we've talked about this before, about them having to choose sides. Is this something we, we need to expect more of? My, my initial reaction is that this, this current situation is to a certain extent sui generis. Um, though not entirely so, right? I had, um, I had, um, with my usual prescience, written an article about a month before this, um, suggesting that China was going to be the issue that a lot of companies had to make a decision around this year. Did they want to stay in a country um, that was guilty of human rights, rights abuses on its own soil and that was eroding democracy um, in Hong Kong? Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd suggested that lots of companies were going to need advice on how to deal with China. Um, 
so other than other than being sort of several thousand miles um further to the east than i should have been um it, i was entirely right um you know i think but i do think that what we're seeing right now is is almost without parallel in terms of there seems to be um with the exception of the american conservative movement um absolute moral clarity um that you know there are good guys the the ukrainians and bad guys the russians and that doesn't happen often in world affairs so that made the decision much easier um than it would have been i mean let's face it the the, the russians are in effect nazi germany in this this scenario and opposing nazi germany didn't require a great deal of moral or ethical consideration it was a no-brainer um so i think in that respect this is unlike anything that we've seen before and you know seeing seeing people live tweeting and and live recording events on the ground daily um seeing individual stories of heroism and individual stories of tragedy makes it much more difficult to just sort of say this is none of our business which I think is still quite a strong instinct in a lot of organizations. So I'm not I'm not sure that this is necessarily going to trigger um, a lot more sort of political activism than we were already seeing. But on the other hand, as we've discussed on podcasts and in the columns many, many times, we were heading in that direction anyway. We were heading towards a world in which companies uh, were expected to um, to take political positions on a host of issues. And it's hard to see this doing anything other than accelerating that trend. Mm. I, I think there's a there's a couple of couple of um, comments in my reputation piece that really stood out for me to that point with uh, John Aaron's at um, Rudd Pedersen saying, it's not like this isn't like Brexit. There's no polarization here. Every brand and business that has made reference to Russia has said very clearly, it's about Russia's unprovoked uh, invasion of Ukraine. The language is very clear. The language isn't neutral. Um, and uh, you know, some somebody else I spoke to said it's actually it's a it's a low risk proposition to voice support and solidarity with the Ukrainian people because effectively, uh, as Paul said, you're advocating for peace and rejecting war in this situation. It's it's not a, a you know that this is not something where corporates need to be neutral or, or can be neutral, I think, which I, I, I'm i not sure we've seen to this extent before, particularly with not just words, but deeds and action following that relatively swiftly from all over the world. I mean, it's, we really are in unprecedented times here. Yeah, the other thing that's been interesting about this, from my point of view, you know, talking, talking to people in um, in the sort of front rank agencies, and I, I, that that sounds wrong, but I mean, particularly companies that are involved in corporate counsel. Um, a lot of the people that I've spoken to are very clear that their clients are calling them for advice. Um, you know, they're, they're, I, I talked to somebody at a global um, corporate financial firm um, last week, and they were having separate conversations with at least a dozen clients um, about you know, what those clients, not just what they should say, but what they should do. Um, and those ranged from luxury goods companies, where I think the decision should be fairly clear that that doing business in Moscow at this time, or in Russia at this time, um, 
is incompatible with your values, to pharmaceutical companies who were being pressured to stop doing business in Russia and had to sort of push back and say, you know, we're not going to uh, we're not going to stand, stop sending life-saving medications to ordinary Russians um, just because the companies, the country's at war. Um, and you know, it, in terms of public relations firms being called on um, to give advice on policy and behavior rather than um, just communication, and I'm not saying it's unprecedented, but I think it's probably at an unprecedented level that big agencies are being asked to give counsel at that level on big geopolitical issues. Yeah, not not before time, perhaps. Um, Maya, how, how are you seeing brands uh, threading this particular needle when it comes to not, not looking like they are abandoning their Russian suppliers, employees, customers who, you know, in, in, in some cases, in, in many cases, perhaps through no fault of their own, um, have been dragged into this. Are you seeing different communication inside Russia and outside Russia? Is that a consideration at all? Um, I don't know how clear that is yet because I'm not sure how much, but I, I'm not sure how much an idea we have of what's necessarily been said inside Russia. I think, I think the the brands that have come out with the most with with early and consistent statements have sought to um, have sought to make it clear that there are several considerations. So IKEA's statement was first of all that it's a human rights issue um, in in defence of the people of Ukraine, but secondly they have to temporarily pause operations because they have supply chain issues. So, so there's there's a pragmatic point there as well as the, the reputational and humanitarian um, point. Um, others like I said, McDonald's have, have made it very clear they will carry on paying their Russian employees while they while they shut shut up shop. And um, the the messages from almost everybody has been uh, language like paused temporarily for the time being. Um, it's not a wholesale with Draw as far as I can see for permanently and in the long term for for any brand so far. Um, I think the PR agencies that we've talked about withdrawing and the networks are having to make slightly different statements. Um, you know, some of that is, is is quite messy. I think when you're trying to divest your Russian operation altogether, that's kind of a different issue. Um, so yeah, it's I mean it's complicated. There's many strands of of communications here you know there, there's not a page in the playbook for this uh, some have been late and some messages have been muddled and some have sort of uh, came out early but with fairly vague statements not saying we're looking at it but you know we stand with the people of ukraine but not actually saying what they're what they're doing themselves so um i think this is going to evolve i think we'll see i think the statements we've seen so far from brands won't won't be the won't be the last i think this is you know it's it's a changing situation if if things escalate then all go on much longer than anyone is is hoping they will then i think well they'll, they'll have to look at those kind of we're pausing things for practical business humanitarian and reputational issues and and and, and have another hard look at what their future is in russia well it's, it's a big change from when um brands of business were, were flocking to russia as, as one of the you know, one of the markets of the future oh absolutely i mean i you know I think um, you and I have, have both spent time in Russia with Russian agencies. Um, and 
two years ago, I would have said that there was an energy and an optimism about the future of the Russian public relations business. There was a concerted effort um, led by a handful of the leading agencies in Moscow and St. Petersburg um, to bring the Russian market closer um, in terms of values and behaviors um, to what we see in Western Europe and North America. Um, progress was being made. Um, and, you know, I think if, if we'd let that run its course, um, you would have seen Russia become much more integrated into the global PR community than it, than it was. And, you know, you and I know people who, who do business in, in Russia. Um, you know, Michael Maslov at Ketchum um, is, you know, a PR practitioner who would have no problem holding his own on the global stage. Um, and... You know, it's difficult now to see um, how people and agencies like that can be reintegrated into the global PR community um, unless there is a very dramatic change in Russia um, over the next few years. Yeah, that is one um, outcome that is, is going to be, you know, fascinating and indeed, I think, uncomfortable to watch. But to your point, I, I feel that even by a couple of years ago, we were starting to see a lot of change in terms of Russia. If you look at the MNC networks, they started disentangling, if that's a word, themselves from, from Russia from around, I think, 2014 onwards, which was, which was the, the um, annexation of, of um, Crimea. Uh, we saw Ketchum um, give up its, its Russian account. Edelman parted ways with Imageland, although I, I think that was less to do with politics and more to do with, with them, perhaps uh, financial issues. Um, and, you know, over the next few years, we saw several agencies who, who may have had Russian operations. Uh, I think Ogilvy and SPN is another example. They, they parted ways. Fleischmann and Vanguard apparently last year, although I, I think, I gather we're not necessarily sure how, how complete that separation is. Um, but it does seem like the the global agency industry had stepped away from Russia um, for largely, it would appear, political reasons, um, which, which makes you wonder, you know, first of all, is, is there any going back, number one? Um, but for the agencies that are left there, uh, and, and I think that's what Ketchum, which owns, I believe, 100% of its Moscow operation, um, I think APCO is active in Moscow. I think Grayling is still there. And then there are smaller firms like EM. I mean, how do you both see the quandary facing uh, those types of firms? Well, first of all, it, you know, I think, I think the dichotomy between economic reasons for pulling out and political reasons for pulling out is probably a false dichotomy. Um, I, I, I spent... Um, as you know, I spent some time last week talking to Peter Neckersolmer, who founded um, PBN, the first Western public relations firm in Russia, um, which went on to, to become a force in, in Ukraine and Kazakhstan as well, uh, which he sold to Hill and Knowlton, which Hill and Knowlton is now via the WPP disin disinvesting um, from 
um, from, from Russia um, parting ways. And, um, you know, Peter, Peter um, made the point and that look, he knows the market um, much more intimately than, than I do, um, that the multinationals found themselves in an incredibly difficult position in Russia with many of the local firms. I certainly don't want to say all of the local firms because I, I don't I don't think that's true. But many of the local firms um, being prepared to kick back a portion of the fees that they earned to government officials in exchange for big government contracts, um, being being willing to um, to, to you know, fudge some of their numbers. Um, and I think it's very difficult for a, a multinational that is um, subject to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, for example, in the States, um, to compete economically in that kind of environment. Um, you're sort of forced into a, a niche of, I don't want to say only working for other multinationals because... Uh, you know that that may give uh, that may give some multinationals too much credit and some Russian companies not enough credit, uh, but it still makes it incredibly difficult to compete. And so that that um, that idea that that you know politics and and economic considerations are two separate things is not as true in in Russia as it might be. Um, again, I I think without regime change without the possibility of Russia becoming a more stable democratic society, it's going to be very, very difficult for um, for Western firms, PR firms, to go back into that market. Just before I come to you, Mike, just to complete the, the um, that kind of thought, um, for the benefit of our listeners who, who maybe are not aware, I mean, the other, other moves that, that are worth flagging here uh, so one philosophy in ukraine split from its russian arm um a few years ago oh, i think 2014 2015 after the annexation of crimea uh, they were before that one company i believe and was that prp is that prp um which was weber shandwick's affiliate right. in yeah. in um russia and ukraine for the longest time um was yeah essentially became one philosophy the prob possibly the leading PR firm um, in Ukraine, um, right? Which split from Russia, yeah. And now we've also got WPP disinvesting from its Russian operations, which includes PBN H and K, which, uh, if not the biggest international PR firm in that part of the world, is certainly up there. So Maya, over to you. I mean, how do you see? The situation for agencies and what and what is kind of the latest in terms of in terms of investment and disinvestment? Well, I think after WPP came out first and said we're just going to have to pull out completely, I think it's going to be very difficult for well Omnicom in particular. Um, you know, Fleisch and Hillard may um, be on its way out or, or fully divested. We're not quite sure of the the remaining entanglement. That their name is, you know, the name's still above the door. Ketch and Moscow is a is a wholly owned office. Um, th there's going to, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's tough. <laughs> it's tough on many levels. But I think I think Paul's absolutely absolutely right that that you, it's simply going to be untenable to continue doing business there. And also, we're not clear. Like you know, when I did that reputation piece. 
I approached all of the big Stratcons firms around the world for a comment, and hardly any of them wanted to comment on or off the record. So I think we've still got a client issue as well as a presence issue as well. Um, we're not completely clear of, of which Western firms, Western-based firms, are still in fact doing business for um, Russian government um, organizations, oligarchs. We we haven't got a clear picture on that. And I, I imagine there's some, some things going on behind the scenes because otherwise we're going to have whistleblowers coming forward and saying, well, they may be saying this, but they're still working for so-and-so. So um, it it's going to have to be a wholesale uh, difficult cutoff, whatever form that comes in, whether that's kind of uh, MBOs or or other forms of divesting the agency interest there, but I can't see any way of it, it carrying on. Yeah, I mean, that's the other angle, isn't it? You, you may not be in Russia. We know many firms who are not in Russia, but they have benefited um, very handsomely from Russian business um, of, let's, let's be honest, I think, of, of, of dubious provenance in many cases. Uh, Paul, you support um, Chelsea Football Club. Uh, for example, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to suggest you're to, you're to blame for anything that's, that's happened, but as an example um, of how Russian money has found its way into different types of soft power vehicles, you know, you don't need to look any further than Chelsea Football Club. But let's be clear, right, the PR industry in London in particular has been a big part of this. Um, and, you know, perhaps it's been... I don't know if it has been that uncomfortable an alliance, but I mean, did, did, is it fair to say that the, the industry shoulders some of the blame for for the way that Russian influence has been able to spread unfettered in, in the manner in which it has? I think there's a case to be made um, that that PR agencies were insufficiently um, cautious in terms of their due diligence. Um, now, I will also say that I think that the worst offenders have been firms that I would consider to be on the fringes of or even outside the mainstream of public relations. So there are a lot of public, public affairs firms, um, particularly those that are deeply aligned with the Conservative Party in the UK, um, or with Republican interests in the US that have been very comfortable representing oligarchs and um, and even in some cases the Russian government. Now, the big exception to that, obviously, is the long relationship that Ketchum and its various sister companies, Maslov in, in Russia, um, and the G-plus operation in Brussels had with the Russian government, um, which was largely around economic development. But uh, as I think you and I discussed at the time, and you know, as we suggested to people at Ketchum at the time, um, the economic development of Russia is inextricably related to the domestic political environment. And sure, they they weren't until 2014, at least, um, going around invading their neighbors. Um, but it was clearly um, a regime um, that had troubling human rights issues um, and 
and trying to um, trying to to sort of draw a line between what was going on in in Russia and the need for economic development um, always seemed a little uncomfortable to me. Um, but the companies that have been most involved in, for example, getting Russian oligarchs preferential access to um, the conservative government here in London. Um, I don't I don't think that that has been, um, you know, the, the firms that we spend a lot of time covering. Um, they tend to be much more political access peddling kind of firms than, you know, transparent PRCA type firms. Is that fair, Maya? Yeah, I think that I think that's completely fair. I think that the the additional layer to that point is that there's lots of smaller agencies who happen to have clients who may be based in Russia or funded by Russian um, interests who are going to have to do, as you said, much more due diligence as to where that cash has originally come from, particularly like in the in the startup fintech sector. There's loads of firms that are coming out of, of, of Russia. And if you're not absolutely 100% sure that there's no link whatsoever with the Kremlin, Kremlin where that, from where that cash comes from, then I think that's, that's going to be, it, it, it's almost better to steer clear altogether than to get caught up in something which maybe firms haven't had to look at in that much depth or haven't wanted to look at in that much depth. So yeah, it's 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 going to get interesting. I think. I mean, the, I I don't know. I don't know if you're ready to move on to this topic, Arun. But to me, this is you know this is part of what I wrote about in in the story that I did on Russia's longstanding disinformation destabilization campaign against the West, which is that that we were all too happy to either ignore or feign obliviousness to what was going on. And so, you know, you had Russian interests of all kinds, um, whether it was, you know, the disinformation campaigns that were being launched using US social media, um, or whether it was Russian moneyed interests, um, you know, and I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to make this um, sound um, uh, like I think there's some vast conspiracy because I don't think it was a conspiracy. I think it was entirely done in plain sight, and everybody knew about it. Um, you know that that you saw these economic tentacles of Russian campaigns creeping into Brexit in the UK, the election of Trump in the US. Um, that you know. This was, this was all part of the same strategic um, campaign to sow chaos and discord in democratic countries in Europe and, and North America. Um, and, you know, the, the so-called corporate interests, Russian corporate interests, which are, you know, all have incredibly strong relationships with the Kremlin were part of that. Yeah, I, I mean, and to that point, I think um, the last time I went to Russia, pretty sure it was 2016, it was, um, it was actually the day after the presidential election uh, in which uh, President Trump was elected. And um, I went to a conference on PR 
in Moscow. And there was widespread satisfaction, uh, not only in Trump's election, but in the manner in which he'd been elected and the role that social media had played in that election. So it was definitely, if it was hiding, it was hiding in plain sight. Um, I think is, is probably a good way to describe it. Yeah, I you know there was a there was a very concerted, strategic, centrally managed campaign um, by Moscow, um, most prominently in Brexit and in the American elections, but also in the French elections, where drumming up support for for the far right and Marie Le Pen um, was a big part of the strategy. Um, less successfully, I think, in Germany. Um, but but there was nothing haphazard or accidental about any of that. And, you know, there, there were plenty of people calling attention to it at the time, um, many of whom were dismissed as, as you know, cranks and conspiracy theorists. Um, but with the benefit of hindsight and the evidence that we have now, particularly from the Mueller report, I don't think there can be any question that this was a form of warfare that Moscow was able to get away with, um, either because the, the people who benefited from it didn't particularly want to draw attention to it, um, or in some cases, because there was um, a working relationship in place. So just to close, I wanted to actually come back to the issue of brands, because uh, I think it is it's so interesting. And as, as both of you have noted, it, it does feel like something of a, of a turning point. Um, Maya, in your piece, um, you, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fabulous analysis, by the way, and I would recommend everyone read it. Um, you, you talk about you know, the perils of virtue signaling and the changing role of business. We've already, on this conversation, discussed whether this is um, a sign of things to come or, uh, a, you know, a unique situation. And I, I feel like it's, it's a little bit of both. I think one potential outcome here is that, you know, we've already seen um, an increase in geopolitical tensions between the US and China and brands being, being asked you know, which side are they on? We've seen that. With, we've talked about this in, in Provoke. You know, the NBA is one good example of that. In China, we've seen it to a certain extent in Myanmar. We can potentially see you know, some sort of a Cold War scenario developing where um, brands are being asked um, far more uncomfortable questions. So the question I leave both of you with then is, is whether neutrality is an option anymore and you know that has always i think been the the sort of lowest common denominator response by multinational brands that want to be all things to all people is that is that still realistic um, and if neutrality isn't an option do you expect brands to actually become far more politically active uh, perhaps uh, in an era of um, of heightened geopolitics um, I think we've got um, we've got past a tipping point now, haven't we? I mean, the the Russia situation is is unique, but it's also meant that brands are having to speak up some for the first time on on geopolitical issues. And I'm not sure how you can dial back from that if this if we're going to see 
further escalation and you know nobody wants to see another cold war but it it does feel a bit it does feel a bit like we're heading to a position where where neutrality is is uh, on it probably on a case by case basis is 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 kind of dead. I think in the West we've got the the problem as Paul's discussed that we've 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 been complicit in this. You know we've 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 allowed it to happen. We've turned a blind eye. We've benefited financially. We've it's influenced our political decisions. And it's like you know it's not just it's not just the US and the UK and Europe. You know Russia's. Russia's um, influence over several South American um, elections is also in question. So I don't think there's going to be a point at which brands are going to be able to say say nothing from now on, where there is something that is so um, which is so cut and dried as as the invasion of of Ukraine. So I don't I don't anticipate. I think we'll see more of it. But again, you know, the, to your point, it can't be just virtue signaling. It's got to be it's got to be meaningful and um uh, it, it's also got to balance all those aspects of um uh, finance reputation humanitarian um issues but also be meaningful and you know it's the most overused word in the past decade in pr but it's got to be authentic it, it's got to it, it it has to be real and true so yeah, I think brands, is, you know, once they've they've now stuck their head above the parapet, I think they're going to be under more pressure to to comment and take action on on further global geopolitical developments, and that that might be really uncomfortable actually in situations which aren't quite as cut and dried as this one. That's the thing, isn't it? Nothing's as cut and dried as this. So. Yeah, this this is a this is this is the nearest thing to a no brainer that you're going to come across in in the modern world i think uh, you know we're living in a complex nuanced kind of uh, era um and this is an exception to that i think i think though that the interesting the interesting discussion is not about um you know with, withdrawal versus um neutrality um, I think the interesting question is going to be between withdrawal and engagement. Um, in situations where there is, you know, a, a reworking of the Cold War, whether that's, you know, increased tension and hostility between America and China, for example, um, or even, you know, a, a changed relationship between America and Russia, um, after after this um flashpoint is over and you know i i don't know what that looks like if it's russia occupying ukraine i don't see how it ever goes back to being simply a cold war if there is some sort of um, resolution to this that involves russia pulling back out of ukraine to um pre-2014 borders then i think you can start to talk about what happens next but i think the interesting discussion in those in those situations is going to be as a corporation do we do most good by turning our back on markets that don't necessarily share our values um, or do we do most good by engaging with them and trying to be a force for good within those markets that that's a debate that i saw raging 30 odd years ago during apartheid era South Africa 
Um, it's a debate that's going on in the United States right now about whether companies should pull out of places like Texas and Miami, where freedoms are being attacked on a daily basis. Um, and I think companies are going to have to make a decision um, about whether they want to, whether they believe they can engage in those places and make a positive difference or whether there comes a point at which doing any kind of business there is simply contributing to the problem um, and, and therefore have to draw out. And, and that's going to be the interesting thing for me. And, I, I'm, and I'm not, I, you know, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who I referred to earlier, um, wrote a piece um, last week, I think, uh, drawing, drawing attention to what went on in South Africa during apartheid um, and essentially applauding all of those companies that pulled out of South Africa. But there were plenty of companies that stayed in South Africa that insisted on treating their African employees um, exactly the same as they treated white employees. And those companies could, I think, legitimately argue that they did more good than harm by staying in South Africa. And so there is a case to be made for engagement. Um, and that's going, that's going to be where the, where the difficult decisions come for a lot of companies. Yeah, whenever people talk about engagement, I always think about that firm that ended up working with the Libyan government. <laughs> Possibly a little bit unfair, um, but uh, yes. I, I, I may, maybe it's just my jaundiced view having lived in Hong Kong. I am less convinced these days of the merits um, of engagement. But anyway, you're you're very uh, you're very right, Paul. I think in saying that that is a very very complex conversation, and, and there is no doubt a case to be made for engagement. Um, so we've talked a lot about the brands and agencies involved, but of course, you know, the one thing we mustn't forget is the human cost um, of this unprovoked war. Maya, I wonder if you can maybe fill us in in terms of the impact on. You know, the, the PR firms you've been talking to uh, in Ukraine? Well, honestly, this is, this is, I mean, so much of this is unprecedented. You do not expect as a trade journalist to be having the kinds of conversations that, that Paul and I have been having with Ukrainian PR agency owners over the past couple of weeks. It's been absolutely heartbreaking to hear the stories on the ground. I mean, Natalia Popovich in One Philosophy wrote that wonderful but absolutely heartbreaking um letter from ukraine describing what it's like for her you know her, her team are writing press releases in bomb shelters she feels like she doesn't have a business at the moment they're trying to all trying to support each other as 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 friends and colleagues and families support the ukrainian government with with their comms outreach and their fight against russian disinformation they don't know when they're going to see their families again they don't know if they're business will survive you know physically or uh, or in any sense and it's um yeah it's 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 been really hard listening to that because they're just you know they're just PR professionals doing their job many of them have uh, associates family friends colleagues in Russia um as well and that's you know that's there's a very complicated set of emotions uh, and underneath it all it's it's kind of fear for their lives effectively um not just their businesses so yeah it's been um it, it, it's that you know that's the flip side of it is that there's a very human tragedy un unfolding here and um it's been 
it's been hard to to listen to to some of that lived experience on the ground in a war zone in a way that we've we've simply never had to cover before so yeah and there's also the Poland which is sort of stuck in the middle as, as Poland often is um offering sanctuary to to the Ukrainians well aware of of how this can play out um it, unfettered so it, it's been a it's it's been heavy actually having having those conversations and we will try and stay in touch with as many of those Ukrainian agencies we've been speaking to as possible and, and check in on check in on them because the first thing it's like the early days oh it's kind of worse than the early days of the pandemic we haven't quite uh, got through yet thank you Putin um but you, the first question is, how are you? How are your teams? Are you all okay? Are you all safe? Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's your starting point. Is that are you safe? And then, um, yeah, there's been some, the, some very raw um, conversations we've had with with the Ukrainians on the ground over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, heavy, but uh, he- heavy and hard work, but essential. Yeah. So thank you both, actually, not, not just for this conversation, but for your for your work over the past couple of weeks, um, which of course will continue. You know, there's no story more important than this um, to provoke media right now. So thank you both for your time. Thanks. Thanks, Rui. And we'll be back on the podcast soon. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. 